Well, good morning one and all. It is certainly good to be back and having the privilege of bringing God's word to you. If you'd like to turn to Psalm 63, uh, we'll hear from God's word first and then have a few thoughts from this passage of scripture. So reading from Psalm 63, and as is our habit here, I'll be reading from the 2011 NIV. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him. While the mouths of liars will be silenced. Amen. And may God bless his word. Well, as I said, it is good to be back. And uh, thank you so much for those who sent us Christmas and New Year wishes. Uh, this is our first service back in the 8.30 last week. I was upstairs practicing to lead the uh, later service. But uh, this is my first service back with you guys. And uh, it's really been great to uh, just get back into the swing of things, the many things that are actually going on in the church at the moment. And uh, we've decided as a pastoral team that we will just do a few of the Psalms in this interim period between what we've actually organized to do for the rest of the year and things like that. And they said, you could pick your own psalm. So when I came this morning, I suppose I could have picked those psalms that had particular relevance to me, things that have transformed my life, things that have been really applicable in some seasons. And one of those would have been Psalm 121. But instead of doing that, I decided to do something totally new so that I would learn uh, just as you people hopefully will learn this morning as well. I wonder if we've ever thought about the purpose of psalms in scripture. I know that if I was to run a poll for those of you who read the word, you would say that Psalms have been very encouraging and strengthening for you in certain seasons and things like that. And I suppose for me, they've helped me most when I found difficulty in praying. If you ever have troubles praying, go to the Psalms. Pray a Psalm. It's an incredible thing. It connects you with God in such a powerful way. They've recentered my focus on God rather than the many things that can weigh in and distract us. They've given me insight into how we should live for God each and every day. And in short, Psalms have taught me the nature of worship, what it's really about. It's a lifestyle. It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment choice to do things God's way, to put aside everything and anything the world offers and to focus fully upon him and to make my decisions with a Christian worldview. And so this morning, I hope you'll receive a challenge to live a little closer to God. That's it. My hope is everyone moves one step closer to God. Whether you know him or not, that's my hope. Let's pray. 
Father God, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you it does transform lives. Thank you that you're present in this place now. And Lord, you're present everywhere, but significantly here because we want to hear from you. We want to engage with you. And so, Lord, we come to you now and we ask that you would just reveal the truth of your word to us, that we individually will hear what you have to say to us. And that, Lord, more than hearing, we'll respond to that word. We'll want to change our lives so we can draw closer to you. We submit to you and your authority this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we approach this psalm this morning, I think it's important to know a little bit about what's actually going on. This is a psalm of David, King David, and he's written it in a very difficult period of his life. And David is in the desert of Judah, and he's in the desert of Judah because his son Absalom was seeking to take his life, to kill him and take over his throne. Has anyone had that occur? No. No. Bit of a difficult situation for David, isn't it? And this is David who had received the promise from God, who'd received this great vision from God, that he would have this throne, that he would have this kingdom, and this kingdom would be all-powerful and almighty, and this God that he worshipped for some reason had allowed all that to change. And he's out in the wilderness like a criminal, being hunted down, and all the trappings, all the wonderful things that he had, all the incredible blessings are gone. That's where he is. But in the midst of that, just like David, in the midst of our troubles, I believe first and foremost, we should thirst for God. Can I just have it up the back too, please? Thank you. And I think this is significant. It's an expression of David's commitment to God, even in the midst of everything that is going on. Look at the first verse of Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is where the rubber meets the road for David's faith. He's out in this wilderness. He's got very little compared to what he used to have. And it's hard for you to imagine, I know, when you think about Israel, we think about how fruitful it was and everything like that. And Israel is a land like that. But the tracts of land that produce that produce are very, very minimal. I'm a guy who actually doesn't eat dates. I couldn't get enough of them when I was in Israel. They were the most incredible I've ever had. But the thing is, I have to be honest, as wonderful as that land is, by about halfway through, most of us on the tour were going, great, more rocks and dirt. That's Israel. There's just so much barren land. And I think that reflects God's blessing on that place because the land that is fertile is incredibly fertile. And realistically, there's one river that provides most of the water for that place. The Dead Sea is not called the Dead Sea for no reason. There's nothing there. Nothing grows in it. It's incredible. And so this is the land that David is in. He's out in the wilderness. And when David speaks about thirst... He's speaking to a people who know what that means. You know, those of you who have been involved in sports and things like that, when you begin to dehydrate, you get that slight headache just behind your eyes, don't you? That's where it starts. That tells you that you're short of water. And as dehydration continues, you know, dehydration check, guys, if you just push your thumb and you get a mark there, it should clear very, very quickly. A good sign that dehydration is setting in is when you push that and it doesn't clear. That shows that the moisture is going out of your body. And these people would all be aware of that. 
And so when David talks about thirst, he know, he, these people are imagining those times when they got so weary because they had no water that they were fainting. They were stumbling. And he says he thirsts after God like you thirst after water. He sees God as being life-giving. He sees that as being most important in his life. And the thing is, as you travel through the wilderness, you're always looking for signs of water, aren't you? You're looking for those oases. You've all seen those movies. The older movies seem to do this better. Hey, the ones back in the 60s and 70s, someone staggering through the desert, suddenly palm trees pop up on the horizon. You look for those oases in dry lands, don't you? That's where the water's going to be. And even if it's off your path, you head there because that gives life. That's the thirst David is speaking of. It's the place every traveller goes to be refreshed. And this is how David sees his relationship with God. He's been separated from that place where all Israel has been told they must worship God. He doesn't get to go into the tabernacle anymore. He doesn't get to spend time with God worshipping like that. But that doesn't stop him looking for God. That doesn't stop him engaging with God. And so David shifts his view or perspective from his outward circumstances, the terrible things that are going on, and he looks full upon God. He thinks about God and the promises that God has made, who he is. And David's desire is to be in a better place, to be able to worship God freely in Jerusalem, But that can't happen right now in his present situation or circumstances. So he chooses to focus on what he knows of God. He chooses to reflect on his experiences of God. And as such, he can have satisfaction in God yesterday. David makes this choice. And in reality, I think he's got a bit of a right to whine about the fact that God made these promises that he'd be king and everything like that, and now it's all gone. He's running around in the desert, fearing for his life. Who knows what he's eating? It might just be locusts. We don't know. But he doesn't bemoan his situation. He doesn't whinge or whine at all. He thinks about who God is. He thinks about what God has done. And he thinks about what God has revealed to him. 63, 2 and 3 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. And there's something a bit lost in translation here. I I, I know some people don't like these things being brought up, but the fact is, in the original Hebrew, the word that is translated looked upon, or as I read out before, I have seen you in the sanctuary. That particular word is not actually a physical seeing. This is something that happens in a vision. And so the vision was given to David of God in his sanctuary. As you know, no one could look upon God and live. So when we read this passage, when we read this, there's no way that David would have looked upon God and actually lived. So this is a vision that God has received, which for me makes it all the more amazing that David remembers this vision and says, you know what, God, that is enough. You've given me this vision. I have seen a glimpse of your glory and I'm going to rest in that. And he remembers this vision of God in the sanctuary. Do we remember that other vision that someone got? Back in Isaiah chapter 6, this incredible vision that Isaiah had 
where God was in all his glory, enthroned in the temple, and his robe filled that temple. And who knows what that means, but obviously it's just this magnificent vision that Isaiah can't describe. And it's an almighty or powerful God who what he says and does is complete and true and will never fail. And this is the vision that David has, something along similar lines. It's that vision of an almighty or powerful God. And remembering this vision, David is saying, you know what, that's enough, God. That is enough for me. God, you remain all powerful, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of what going on is going on. You never, ever change. And for me, I will rest in that. You're unchanging. And though I long for more, and my present situation is difficult, Though the times are hard and I'm far from where I thought I would be. You have a plan. And I'll be satisfied in knowing you've got control. I will rest in that. I am complete in you. And so I know satisfaction in God. David arrives at this point where he says, God's love is better than life. We had read that line. We've sung it a few times. But I wonder if we grasp what it really means. I wonder if we really believe it. Is God's love better than life? When we think about life itself, I think most of us would say, yes, we value life above all else. If someone was to come in here now with weapons and they were holding them against your head and say, give me the keys to your car, give me your wallet, give me whatever, I think the majority of us would just hand that over. And the reason why we hand that over is because we value life above anything else. If we have a wound or something on our arm that is infectious, that is going to cause our whole body to, to wilt and die, and the doctor says the only way to cure of this is to take that arm off, We make that choice, don't we? We have this habit of going through painful surgeries and things like that so that we can prolong life. So for most of us, life is the most valuable thing. And yet here David is saying, your love is greater than life itself. I would give my life up in order to know your love more. And is that a reality for us? Uh, For me, for the most part, it's not. I'm not sure I'm at that point. But David is saying, Your love is better than life. And the word translated love here is that covenant love, the promises of God, the things that he has said that we can stand upon and be sure of. It's this love that is constant. It is never changing. It doesn't matter what we do, the circumstances we're in, his love remains constant and true. It's a love we can depend on. It's a love that will never fail. Does that sound familiar? When we look at Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, think about where David is. He's cut off from that one place where he can worship God. But he's found that he's not cut off from God. It's always been about relationship with God, not a location. It's always been about how we engage with God, not just on Sundays, but all throughout the week. At the time of writing, there's not much going on for David's life, to be quite honest. He's in the wilderness. His kingdom's gone. He's separated from that place of worship. But David knows his life with God is worth more than all of that. 
And that's what he's focusing on. God's love is better than life. And because he knows this, because he's seen it, he will praise God, regardless of everything else, regardless of his circumstances. The circumstances around us should not dictate our relationship with God. The circumstances we are in should not dictate our relationship with God. And David chooses to praise God in the midst of this very, very difficult season. And the incredible lesson for us here is that if we found satisfaction in God historically, if we have known or experienced his love in the past, then just like David, we can be sure he'll continue to satisfy us even today. And David experienced satisfaction in God today in his very circumstances. He's fleeing for his life. And seriously, who knows where he sleeps? Who knows the type of bed he now has? But he's determined to pursue and connect with God, regardless of where he is. I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And I don't know about you, but when I think of the circumstances Dave is facing, I, I, I find this really difficult to relate with. He's just risen above all that, and he's just rested in God. And I suppose this is why David is called a man after God's own heart. This is why he is seen as being that great follower of God. Even though he had some horrendous sins in his life, his heart was continually turning back to God and seeking him. And he's in the midst of this incredible hardship. He's living rough. Who knows where he's sleeping, as I said before. But he's found something that we should all pursue. As indicated here in John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, speaking about the Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks of this water, water in the well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And as I said, this is the Samaritan woman by the well, and she comes to Jesus, and Jesus asks her to let down and, and get him some water, and, and then he speaks this to her, and she says, give me the water. She's got this misunderstanding. She doesn't know what it is that Jesus is really saying. But this is where David's at. He realises his armies, his security, his kingdom, everything else is worth nothing if he doesn't know who Jesus is. Who God is, sorry. And it speaks about him being on his bed. David is drunk from this spring of life. And he knows the satisfaction that that brings. And when we think about David being on his bed and meditating through the watches of the night, he's just like us. This is a man who is troubling over what's going on in his life. If you are at peace, if you are calm, are you awake during the watches of the night? I'm not. I usually sleep straight through. But when things are troubling me, when things are on my mind, I have a tendency to wake up throughout the night. And this is what David is saying. But the thing is, he doesn't dwell upon those problems. That's not what this says. As those problems come to mind, as they wake him, he dwells upon God. He dwells upon what he has done. And he meditates on God through the watches of the night.
recalls the vision God has given him. I know I've said it to you before, but if you don't journal, it's a good idea too. Just even if you start with the incredible things God has done, write them down. Because then when you hit a rough patch, you can reflect on that and say, well, God has done this. God has been faithful. God has been true. And it encourages you and strengthens you, gets you back into the scripture, gets you back praying with God. And this is what David's doing. David's saying, well, God gave me that vision. That vision was true. And I can trust God for that. And so in the middle of the night, when things begin to trouble, he says, no, God gave me that vision. And he will bring that to fruition. I trust God. And he remembers God's unconditional covenant of love. And because of this love, David seeks God afresh. He seeks him again. His soul clings to God. And he knows it is God who holds his life in his hands. He's at peace. He knows because he knows. And as such, he's able to sing praises to God. But David knows he'll also have satisfaction into the future. David sees that his major responsibility is to commit his life and future into the hands of God, regardless of what is going to happen. Verse 5 says, my soul will be satisfied. This is talking about the future. This is talking about what's going to happen after tomorrow. He knows that God goes before him and he knows that he'll be satisfied. You've possibly heard that wonderful Christian cliche. I don't know what the future may hold, but I know who holds the future. For many of us, that's all it is. It's just a cliche. Sometimes people have thrown it at us for us to get over some situation we're in. Don't do that, people. It's disgraceful. But think about what that says. If we're like David and we rest in who God is, in the promise that he has made, we know that regardless of what happens into the future, God goes with us and before us. And he will take us through, he will carry us through whatever we're going to face. And because David has seen this vision of God, because he'd experienced and known God's unconditional love, because he's able to reflect on God and all he had done, he makes the decision to entrust his future to God. He leaves it in his hands. And note that David doesn't say, that I'm going to be restored and I'm going to experience the wonderful foods that I once had. He says that because he's dependent upon God, he'll be satisfied as if he had that. He's saying regardless of what riches come your way, God's better. And even in the midst of what I'm going through right now, I'm going to be satisfied as if I had the best. I'm going to be satisfied with my lot in life. And he's not expecting that to be returned to him. He's just going to trust God to do whatever God does. He has experienced God in a very powerful way. It's transformed his life. He no longer has any worries or concerns that outweigh what he sees in God. And in fact, he entrusts the outcome of those who have pursued him to God's hands as well. The last three verses. I don't know what's going on here now. I've lost it. We'll leave it there, eh? 
The last three verses, 9 to 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. These last three verses bring us back to the reality of David's situation. David's saying, this is what's actually going on. I'm in exile. And you know what? This is a reminder that if we confess faith in God, it's in each and every situation of our life. Our faith shouldn't waver. I know it does. But we need to come back to the point. It's like, who has changed here? What has changed here? God has not changed. He is constant and true. He remains the same yesterday, today and forever. And so I will praise him even in the midst of this. And so David, in the midst of danger, frustration and disappointment, is able to acknowledge God and his love. And he is able to acknowledge that those things have not failed. This is the triumph of faith. This is where we're able to stand upon gospel truths. And although we've been hard-pressed from every side, we stand upon those truths and promises. We believe that God is going to bring his, his word to fruition. We believe that he's going to do what he said that he's going to do. And then in the midst of it all, although our world is falling apart, although there's nothing that seems to be going right, we remain constant and true in the fact that God loves us and will bring us to the end. Amen? And we will stand in his presence in glory because he carries us. Is that a biblical truth? Do we stand upon that truth? Do we claim that truth for ourselves? Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's the reality of what David says in this psalm. And he even leaves what happens to his enemies in God's hands. You do it, God. And he knows God will deal with them because God is not only a God of love, he's a God who is just and righteous as well. It is with confidence in God that David says his enemies will be overthrown and those who are lying will be silenced. How awesome would it be to have that confidence? How awesome would it be to be able to lay on your bed when those types of troubles come upon you and you can just hand it back over to God and say, God, I don't understand what's going on, but you and me, God, we can do this. With your power, with your promises, I can get through this with your help. I stand here before you having absolutely no idea what God is saying to you. I know God speaks to people. I can see it on some of your faces. I know that he challenges us. At the very least, I think this morning, this psalm should give us food for thought. Think about that declaration right at the beginning oh God you are my God is that true for you can you honestly say that you have reached that point where you have declared Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour that's where all this starts it's about acknowledging that you've had your own way and done your own thing and you reach a point where you say you know what I can't do this anymore. I need to give up my life to him who died to save me. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you. We need to submit our will and our life to Jesus. For some of us, we made that step or prayed that prayer. And that's as far as it went. Nothing really happened after that. 
For many of us, we didn't receive the discipleship. We didn't receive the encouragement that God has got so much more for us. I know I never did in my Christian walk. There wasn't anyone who came alongside and said, this is what the Christian life is all about. But when we make that first step, we call that justification. That's being put back into right relationship with God. But God has so much more to offer us. We have that life of sanctification, of being continually set apart as holy instruments for his use and his purposes. And so many of us need to be trained in that. So many of us need to understand what it is that God is offering. And this is where that hunger and thirst for God comes in. Perhaps you need someone to come alongside you and help you know how to pray. Please do not be embarrassed if that is you. Please don't be embarrassed. This place should be about growing in Christ. And I praise God for each and every person because there's been many who've come to the front and said, I don't know how to read God's word. You might say, well, that's pretty stupid. You open and read it. I mean, we can all just do a cursory reading. These are people who are thirsting for God, who read the word and don't get anything out of it. And they come forward and they say, Charlie, how do we get something from God's word? Is that something worth praising God about? That's a thirst for God. That's what this psalm is talking about. And the same thing when people come forward and say, I don't know how to pray. I'm struggling to connect with God. We shouldn't put those people down. We shouldn't say, you've been in the church for a decade or two. Get over yourself and get on with it. We should be saying, how can I help you? Let's pray together here and now. That's a thirst and hunger for God. And that hasn't been put there by me. That hasn't been put there by the people around you. That's been put there by God and his Holy Spirit. And it's put there so you respond. You know what? Some of you are nodding your heads because you know that's true for you, but you're going to get up and walk out of here without doing anything about it. And I'm over it. I really am. What more can we do? We want to help you. I want to help you. Let's put aside all the other rubbish. Let's focus on growing disciples in Christ. That's what I'm here for. Everything else can just fall away as far as I'm concerned. Do you want more of him? I do. I really do. We can be like David. Or we can be like that Samaritan woman by the well who had the very truth in front of her and didn't get it. If you're that Samaritan woman, I want to talk to you too. I want to encourage you. There's no arm twisting or anything like that. We can take it nice and steady. I've taken 12 months with people who haven't ended up making a commitment to Christ. Who knows what's happened with those people now? Hopefully they've made that commitment. It is not my responsibility to convert people. I can't do it. That's the work of Holy Spirit. But I can tell you about Jesus. I can tell you about what he's done in my life. I can tell you the truth of his holy word. And I can encourage you to draw closer to him. Do you have things weighing in upon you at the moment? I know there's a ton of people here who do. And, and you know, we, we find it hard to shift from being so concerned about those things to giving that release to God. I'd like to pray with you too. I'm not going to have answers. All I can ask is that God will reveal what he wants to reveal to you. I, I can't say the right things. I think that would be a waste of time. We need to hear from God. We need Holy Spirit to minister to you, but I'd love to pray with you. If there's things keeping you awake at night, let's, let's get together and pray about that. If you don't want to pray with me, I'm fine with that. Gather some good, close Christian friends around you, people you trust, 
Not people who are going to tell you what you need to hear. People who are going to tell you the truth. And pray with them. Listen for what God is going to say. And some of us, some of us have experienced that joy of encountering God. This is what David's talking about, that vision that he had. And you know, when you think about that time you encountered God, the incredible things God did, this joy wells up in you again, but then when that passes, you're in this dry, empty land again, aren't you? If that's you, let's look at working at getting that joy back in your life. You know, it's a joy that even in the midst of the deepest, darkest times sustains you. It doesn't mean you don't get sad. It doesn't mean you don't shed tears. But it means that you have this hope for the future which mankind desperately needs. And we should have it as Christians. We should know that God's got a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. And I'm asking you, if that's you, return to your first love. You've experienced before what God can do. Do not deny the fact he can do it again. I think that's what this psalm says. I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come up. We'll close in a song. I'm going to be here. And I just want to pray with people. So please come forward. There'll be no judgment, no persecution. I just, I just want to pray with people. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your words. Thank you, Lord, again, that you challenged me uh, as I prepare these things, Lord. And I thank you. I did a psalm that I, I wasn't engaged with before. But Lord, it's a powerful word. And Lord, we can trust you yesterday, today, and we can trust you forever. You have told us that we are secure in you. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every one of us this morning that we'll submit to whatever you've told us. You were saying different things to different people. And, Lord, more than anything, I pray that we will respond to what you were saying to us through power of Holy Spirit. I pray we will submit to you and your word and your authority. Lord, let's put aside what people around us are thinking. Let's put aside what we fear our friends may say. And let's just come to you. Lord, I pray 219 will be a year where we as a people of God look back this time next year and say, wow, what an incredible work you've done. We submit to you. Amen.